Good morning. I am David King. I serve here at Christ Church as assistant pastor, and I'm filling in for our pastor this morning who is enjoying a much-needed vacation. Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me in it to the 8th chapter of the gospel, not the gospel, but the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prophecy in the 8th chapter. I really want to preach upon a particular text, but I want to set it in its context. So I'm going to be reading Jeremiah 8, beginning at verse 15 and through to verse 9 of chapter 9. Hear the word of the true and living God. Jeremiah 8, verse 15. We look for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold... I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people." Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord." Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do 
because of my people. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek God's pray face and, and ask his blessing upon the ministry of this his holy and infallible word. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow in your presence, conscious, O oh Lord, that if any good is, is to proceed from what follows, it must be by the blessing of your Holy Spirit. And we would cry out to you as humbly as we know how, O oh Lord, that you would come and grant your servant the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit. And Father, may the Spirit do what no man can do, namely to drive home your truth to the hearts of your people. And though, Lord, though we're looking this morning at an Old Testament passage and text, we pray that you would be pleased in the ministry of the Word to turn all of our eyes upon the Lord Jesus, in whose name and by whose merits we would make this our plea. Amen. As I mentioned, my text is taken from this, the 8th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah and the 20th verse. These words, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. In this passage which we have read, we have an extraordinarily interesting and important series of statements that are to be found here. And what we have here basically in the passage that I read is what we could call an almost three-sided conversation between Jeremiah the Lord and the people of Judah. When Jeremiah wrote these words, we cannot say for certain this part of the prophecy of Jeremiah may have been recorded or put down in writing uh, during the reign of Josiah before any of the people of Judah had been carried away into captivity. In fact, some think that the weeping prophet Jeremiah was born uh, probably in the same year as King Josiah. It may also have been written after the captives had been transported into exile into Babylon, but before the fall of Jerusalem itself. That took place, you may recall, in the year 586 B.C. Our text then, verse 20, is a lament. It is a cry of languish, of sorrow, and of grief, ascribed by Jeremiah to the people, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The words are very clearly unusually sad and solemn. 
They give us the cry of men and women as well as that of boys and girls who now realize something of the gravity, the, the seriousness of their position and plight before God. The situation in which they find themselves is one which they very much deserve and which they have every right to expect as a consequence of their own unbelief and their folly. It is not that the Lord Himself has been impatient with them. On the contrary, His forbearance and His long-suffering have carried them far beyond the point of when they could have, should have expected retribution for their sin and unfaithfulness. The northern tribes of Israel have already suffered a devastating conquest and defeat. And now the southern kingdom of Judah is poised to suffer a similar fate. Judgment is now at the door. And the situation of the people is very serious indeed. The word in our text, saved. We are not saved. It means rescued, delivered, helped out of a problematic and difficult situation. What was happening? Well, at this particular juncture in the world, the all-conquering armies of the king of Babylon were on the march. In the year 612 B.C., the Babylonians, along with the Medes and the Scythians, broke the pride of Nineveh, that Assyrian city, and took that city, leveling it to the earth, as had been predicted in the prophecy of Nahum. And then some seven years later, in the year 605 B.C., the Babylonians won a historic victory over Pharaoh of Egypt and his armies at that key city of Carchemish along the banks, the northern banks of the Euphrates River under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar II, whose name is so prominent in the Old Testament scriptures. Now with Judah and Jerusalem also targeted as a military objective of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar itself, the end of Judah's existence as a nation seemed to be close at hand. The scriptures make it clear, however, that the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, were only an instrument in God's hands. The context of the passage itself is plain enough in that respect. Israel, to be sure, was God's own people. He had chosen them to be His possession. And for centuries, He had sent His prophets to them. He had given them His law. He had given them His word. He had blessed them tremendously. In the city of Jerusalem, even as Jeremiah wrote at this time, the temple still stood. And day by day, morning and evening... The sacrifices that were prescribed by the Mosaic law were being offered. To be sure, there was an admixture. There was this blend of idolatry with their sacrifices of foreign elements that had been introduced 
into their worship from the outside, from a heathen background, these elements that had been mixed and mingled with the faith of Israel, repeatedly as well as persistently, they had turned to one side and then to another, succumbing to the seducements of false religions. And they're called here, you'll notice in this very passage, verse 2 of chapter 9, adulterers, by which the Lord means they had been spiritually unfaithful to Him. They had bowed down to other gods, idols, which were no God in the place of the true and living God. And God indicts them in verse 6 of chapter 8. He says, I've listened and I heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into battle. Even the stork. Notice this, even the, the, uh, the animals understood the seasons. Israel did not. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times. And the turtle dove, the swift and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Now these God-given privileges that they as the covenant people of God had enjoyed for so long, but which they took so very much for granted, ignoring the one who gave them. These same privileges were now functioning as the greater cause for making Judah all the more ripe for judgment from God. The Lord is about to send them into captivity, similar to... It's kind of like we read in the old... Testament prophecy of Hosea. O Ephraim, what shall I do with you? O Judah, what shall I do with you? For your love is like the morning cloud which goes away almost as soon as it appears. Therefore I have hewn my people down by the prophets. I have slain them, God says, by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like the light that goes forth. For I desire chesed, steadfast love, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Further, I want you to notice that we see the situation of the people here was so serious that it was beyond remedy. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. Now the ancient people of Israel knew three harvests. The first of them was the barley harvest, which took place in mid-spring in the month of April. And then seven weeks later after Pentecost, The wheat harvest was gathered then. But it is neither of these that the prophet has in mind in this particular passage. What he is suggesting here is that the people make this statement, that they cry out as they do, make this lament during the time of the harvest of summer fruits. The summer fruits were gathered in in the month of October. And so it is well into the autumn season of the year that they begin to speak as they do in our text. The fruit harvest is past. The summer season is, is past, is gone by. But even so, 
we are not saved. Now the idea being expressed here is that the seasons have changed. The time for sowing and reaping has come and gone. The reprieve and relief for which they had looked and anticipated is nowhere in sight. The frost had begun. The winter is before us. And still, there is no hint of relief or deliverance. Help, you may recall, had been sought by Judah in Egypt. The people had hoped that by entering into a treaty and an alliance with that great power would prove to be the impregnable armor that they needed against their otherwise weak and indefensible position. That Pharaoh and his armies would once again march northward and do battle with Nebuchadnezzar and his forces. And that at least for a short season some breathing room might be obtained. But though the people of Jerusalem looked daily in a southerly direction, they saw no cloud of dust which would have been the harbinger or the herald that the forces of Pharaoh were on the march to their rescue. Nothing was to be seen by way of deliverance from that quarter whatsoever. Thus driving home the truth of the prophet's words in chapter 17 and verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm of strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. So we have here then in our text the plaintive, indeed the pathetic cry of a people in whom there is now this increasingly powerful sense of fear which is bordering on panic itself. It has begun to dawn upon them that there is no deliverance on the way. Nothing is coming to help them. Indeed, that the judgments of God for their sin, of which they had been warned time and time again, were now about to break in upon them. The lightning flash of His anger and the thunderbolt of His fury, it was now about to be unleashed. Now you may be asking yourself this morning, <laughs> why in the world... Is this man speaking to us upon such a subject and in such a way and at such a time? Well, surely you must know that I haven't chosen a text like this to try to distress or trouble you as though it were my conviction that a kind of cathartic experience would do you some good. That if only I could heap enough guilt upon you from a sermon that you would then be able to leave church this morning thinking, well, at least something worthwhile has taken place. You know, there are a lot of folk who come to church believing nonsense like that. Uh, they think that if they just subject themselves to a sermon that's filled with enough fire and brimstone to get scoured and scorched and scourged, that it has a sort of cleansing effect upon them and they can go away feeling that somehow their sins have been atoned for. Well, I hope that we don't have anyone here that believes any such silly notion as that. I know on one occasion I had a lady tell me years ago in the church I pastored that her criterion for determining or assessing 
whether or not a sermon was good or bad was whether or not it made her weep. A good sermon, she insisted, always called forth tears. And if that did not happen, then surely there was something wrong with it. Sometime later, after she informed me of this, I noticed that she was weeping during the course of one of my sermons. And afterwards, I inquired of her as to why, and she assured me that her tears were not for herself, but that they were for me. Now, it isn't for any reason like that that I'm speaking to you this morning from a passage like this. This is an unusually solemn passage of Scripture. But it is the autumn season of the year, and the leaves are rapidly falling. Winter is virtually upon us. And in some parts of our country, the hoarfrost has already made its appearance. We have just celebrated One of our national holidays, Thanksgiving. And uh, we're on the verge of what is called Advent. Advent meaning that season which we commemorate the coming of our Lord into the world through the birth of the Virgin Mary. When we prepare ourselves for that celebration. So it is something of a transitional time, summer is well behind us, and much of the fall season as well. The year, the season of 2021 is fast approaching its end. It is a time for thanksgiving, yes, but it's also a time for reevaluation, for assessment, for an honest view in terms of our lives, for where we are and where we ought to be as a people. A word of caution, I think, a word of warning surely is in order at such a time. But why and for what reason? Well, though we have just concluded a week during which we've been reminded that we have much cause for gratitude and thanksgiving for the blessings and benefits and privileges which we so often take for granted, the world the rest of the world. It's hard for us to grasp that, but but many parts of the rest of the world know nothing like our lives that are full of affluence, of blessing, of plenty. I think of such places that one would find perhaps in South America, which I saw. I saw some sites in South America. People, we don't know how blessed we are. Places like Africa and places in Asia all around the world. The world, it seems so unbelievable to us, yes. But the world is full of anguish and misery and suffering. Even today, as we meet here in our own worship service and other churches in the United States that meet for worship, people have died and will die in Ethiopia, in Mozambique, in Somalia, other places, other nations where there is such a fearful shortage of food. There are places like that even here in the United States, even in our own community. And then we have become accustomed, you and I as well, 
for many years now of living in a world where there's not only a delicate balance of power, but a very delicate balance of nuclear power. Even as I speak, we think of the threats that we draw from places like North Korea and Iran, terrorists that have even managed to make a mark on our own nation, and the secular and religious apocalypticists are predicting in the near future the destruction of mankind and the earth itself through the unleashment of the awful bombs that they have stored in their arsenals and that the nations of the world are their targets. And that one day, in one last futile gesture of hatred and animosity, they'll hurl these at one another. You see, on more than one occasion, you and I have felt, even if it did not break out in open verbal expression, something of the hopelessness and the despair that is expressed here by the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem on this occasion. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Now the problems in the world today of hunger and strife, of hostility and animosity, they are real. But I would insist this morning that all of these problems I've mentioned are merely symptoms, symptoms of a much more profound and a far-reaching problem. And though we can and should seek to relieve and to mitigate such symptoms and the misery that people suffer from them, Nonetheless, we're living, you and I, in the midst of a world that has rebelled against its Creator, that has turned its back on God, very much like Judah and Jerusalem. The ugly reality of sin has separated us from our God. This world was created by God to glorify God but it is robbing God of its glory as it persists in its rebellion against Him and its estrangement from Him. The problems of the world are themselves a living attestation that the kingdoms of this world have not yet become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And if the example in this passage of Judah's fearful expectation of judgment teaches us anything, then surely it teaches us as the people of God that our greatest concern ought to be God's concern. The concern of seeing men and women and boys and girls being brought out of, out of a state of sin and separation from God and into a state of grace and communion with God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And herein, I want to say this morning, is where the problem really lies. You see, one of the saddest realities of Jeremiah's day was that religious practice was going on at an all-time high. 
Temple services went on business as usual. The priest tended to their sacrificial offerings on the Sabbath day while the people by and large were profaning that day because their business was such, so much more urgent and important than God's business. I think, and I hope I'm not addressing anyone, perhaps I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but I, I'm afraid that so many of us today charm ourselves with the idea, oh, well, you know, the church is there if I want to attend or if I need it. Yes, it's been there for so many years now, and as long as the building is there, and as long as there's someone present minding the mint, as it were, all will be well. We'll just pay a little bit of a visit, maybe sporadically or periodically. And God understands that we're living in busy times, and... Uh, We've got heavy responsibility. We can't go overboard with the church business, but we're proud of our churches and of our membership, and God understands. Well, if there's anyone here this morning who thinks like that, God does understand. He understands just how deceitful your old cold heart is. You see, the people of Judah had come to take for granted. And, and people, we're liable to the same sin. They had taken for granted the presence and the privilege of God that he had given them. They had come to rely on the structure of their own temple as the symbolism of their security. And God said, do not trust in these lying words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God reminded them that before His name was ever made mention of in Jerusalem, His center of worship was what's located elsewhere in the city of Shiloh. And God says, go to Shiloh, go to Shiloh and see what I did there because of the wickedness of, the peop of my people Israel. 1 Samuel 4. My father once told me that on the Sunday following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that there wasn't an empty space in any church throughout this nation. That's a far cry from where we are today in our own generation as a nation. We're proud that we have freed ourselves from the shackles of fearing God. I know that the United States is by no stretch of the imagination a theocratic state, but could it be that just as God wielded His hand of judgment against the people of Judah by the Babylonians, that He could humble us, has humbled us, in terms of the third world nation, he may yet have some more surprises for us. In the day when our nation has forgotten to be humble and grateful, we do well as the Christian community to cry out to God individually and personally and then collectively and corporately uh, that God would have mercy upon his church and upon our nation ere the season for salvation slips away from us and leaves us with the requiem 
of ancient Israel upon our lips. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Now there is a great deal more I could say with reference to the implications of this text, but I want to leave you with a final exhortation. And I really want to speak directly to any among us, and I can't help but think that in the crowd of this many people, there, there must be some here who are yet strangers to Christ, who have never really turned away from your sin and unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're a member of a church. Perhaps you're a member of this church. Perhaps you're, you've supported God's work and the fellowship of His church for years, but though on the outside there has been the appearance of a Christian profession and commitment on the inside, nonetheless you know very well in your heart of hearts that you're far from grace and far from God. Perhaps you thought about giving yourself up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've experienced similar seasons of divine visitations when God drew near to you in the preaching of the gospel, when the convicting power of the Holy Spirit made you painfully aware of your sin and of your separation from God, but you've tried to put it off, thrust it out of sight and out of mind, as though the ultimate issues of life were not hanging in the balance. Indeed, perhaps you turned the deaf ear to the accusations of your own conscience, that little moral monitor that God has placed within the breast of us all that cries foul or fair, right or wrong. And it has convicted you. And now perhaps this morning God is addressing Himself to you once again. And perhaps you're hearing Him in a way that you have never heard Him before. And He's telling you, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And if this is indeed the case, for heaven's sakes, while God is dealing with you in such a way, I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to abandon your sin and run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace Him by faith. Don't put it off any longer. In fact, Proverbs 27 and verse 1 prohibits your procrastination. Do not boast yourself against tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Do not boast yourself of repenting and believing tomorrow. The word of the gospel comes to us in only one time reference. On only one time reference. You know what that time reference is? It's today. Today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart. There's only one day, if you're lost, there's only one day that you can be certain to be saved, and that is today. You could be in hell tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying that you will be. If you're outside of Christ, you can't prove that you won't be. For the Bible says you do not know what a day may bring forth. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. And when, when is he near? He's near today.
he may be far off tomorrow, as far as heaven is from hell. God has touched you, perhaps in your slumber, time and time again, and season after season of divine visitation. The good news of the gospel has fallen upon your ears times without number. And though God's harvest of souls was gathering this one and that one all around you, you continued to sleep on, unawakened and undisturbed until now. The overtures of mercy. Christ stands before you in the gospel this morning. And the overtures of his mercy are rousing you from your slumber. He bids you to come to himself. Awake you who sleep, says Paul to the Ephesians. Arise and Christ will give you light. May the Lord be pleased even now to shine in your heart, to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, lest the season for your salvation slips away and leaves you as it found you in the sleep of spiritual death on a course slated for judgment, ill-prepared to stand before God in eternity until you wake up then with this hopeless chant upon your lips that we have from the people of Judah, forever ringing in your ears. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Come to Christ. Let us pray.